Well, I'm, I'm glad to continue the series. We are in the, in the series uh, on parables. And so these are just, I mean, they're just great. Jesus was a great storyteller. And he, he had a way with the parables of taking everyday situations that his listeners in Jewish culture would have understood because he was using real life examples. They're, they're not true stories, but they're, they're hypothetical stories, but with real life examples that they would have really understood. And he did that for the purpose of driving home his point so that they would really get what he was trying to say. And so it's just neat to dig into the heart. And so whenever you're, whenever you're teaching a parable, it's important that you dig into the, the culture of the day, specifically concerning the characters that Jesus is talking to. Who is he talking to? Why is he talking to them? If there's characters within the story that he's telling, who are those characters and what makes them significant in Jewish culture? And so that's, that's kind of what I did last week, and we're, and we're going to do it again this week. But before we jump into the parable that, that we're going to study, I, I just want to introduce the subject who, whoever took a psychology class in college? Okay, has anybody ever heard of the name Abraham Maslow? Maslow, Maslow. What did he, he came up with this idea in 1943 called the high, hierarchy of needs. And so if you've taken a psychology class, you, you've heard of this, and it's like this pinnacle. I've got a picture here. And so basically he summarizes what he believed to be the greatest needs for human beings on earth. And the pinnacle at the top of the triangle is the greatest need. So let's kind of look at what Abraham Maslow has to say here. So physiological needs are, are kind of like the base foundation here. You need air. Thank God. We have oxygen there. We're all here this morning breathing. Food. I didn't eat. I ate a half a donut for breakfast this morning. Uh, so I need a little bit more food. But we do need food. We need water. And we need sleep. How many of you get sleep? A little bit. <laughs> I didn't get much last night. I was at the emergency room with my father-in-law last night. He's been struggling in the area of his lungs. And so he had to get a breathing treatment. And so I was there till midnight. So I, I didn't get much sleep last night. But I'm here. Um, so that's kind of the base level. Safety, security of the body, family, resources, love, belonging, family, friends. Those are all human needs that we have. But he puts it at the pinnacle. The top two human needs is self-esteem and self actualization so what is what what is he trying to say there what he's trying to say there is that the greatest need of the human being is to be in touch with himself to be in touch with who he is on the inside self actualization is this idea that 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 you need to come to terms with who you really are and unless who you really are on the inside can be seen for everyone to see and you can be who you're meant to be then you really can't have purpose and meaning in life and so He's painting this idea in his book that he wrote that, 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 that the ultimate purpose and meaning in life is to become the real you, the better you, the, the person that is fulfilling who you really are on planet Earth. And so fast forward, fast forward, this is in 1943, fast forward to 1979, a man by the name of Christopher Lash, Lash wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism, The Culture of Narcissism. And he made this statement in that book, self absorption is the climate of contemporary society let's think about when he wrote that 1979 self-absorption is the climate of modern society 
1970, are you, like, think about where we are now. Self-absorption. If it was the climate of modern society in 79, where are we now? Like, so, so I'm just kind of painting this picture here. 1943, Abraham Maslow, he, 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 in, he influenced the study of psychology across universities around our country, around our world. And so that was the breeding ground for a, a really, a, a real, this, this idea that who you really are, the real you, you need to be the best you that you could possibly be. Life was about you and who you are and what you're supposed to do and, and your world centered around you. So you fast forward down a few years from 79 to 2003. And the first uh, social media site that was ever invented, as far as I, I know, I could be wrong about this, but was MySpace. Anybody remember MySpace? So here, here you go. You, you have this idea that this is my space and my world and life is about me. And I have a space where I have all of my things that I like in my life on the forefront of a computer page. And I want you to come look at my space and see what my life is about because I want you to see me. You see, you see kind of how our culture has trended. Like we were eventually going to be a social media generation. It was bound to happen, right? Because of this, these, these ideas that we have been fed in our culture since we were little kids, that life is about you and you being the best you, you can be. And it's a self-absorbed, self-centered generation. And then 2004, you have Facebook and then Instagram came after that and then Twitter and Snapchat. And so, you even have the leader of the free world trying to lead the country through Twitter. I mean, who would have ever thought? Who would have ever thought that would have ever happened? There would be a president that would tweet. You know, like that's just not what presidents do. But, but that's the culture we're living in. We're living in a culture of social media life where we want everyone to see us. We have this need for who we are to be approved of and loved and valued and cherished. And, and we want to parade who we are for the world to see. And life revolves around us. Now, look, I'm not anti-social media. I know the majority of you are on social media. I, just for the record, I'm going to say it now so you guys know from here on out. Facebook or social media is not a way to contact me. I am not on social media. So if you want to contact me, my number is in the bulletin. Uh, the church office number is in the bulletin. Call me, text me. You can contact me that way. But I'm not on social media. I just want just a disclaimer. And I used to have a Facebook page. And so if you've been trying to contact me, I apologize. I'm not ignoring you. I'm just not on there. It's, and do you know you can't delete Facebook? It is a conspiracy. It's like, it might be the mark of the beast. So all of you that have it, I'm like, like you're stuck. <laughs> like, I, we have tried. You can basically disable it. I think you have to actually delete every single post you ever have posted. To, that's kind of one of the first steps to eventually delete it. And then you have to contact Facebook. Has anybody ever successfully contacted Facebook? I don't know of anybody. <laughs> so, so I'm not anti-social media, but I'm just trying to paint a picture here that this, this is a picture of what is the prevailing idea in our culture and in our times, that life is about me. That, that if you try to squelch who I really am and put that in a box, you're being oppressive. And you're not letting me be who I am. And life centers around me. It's a me generation. Life is about me and who I am. And I want you to see me and how awesome I am, how good I am, how talented I am, how special I am. Look at me. Look at me. Well, what does the Bible say about that? 
Let's look what, let's look what Jesus says. Well, excuse me, let, let, let's, let's pause that just for a second. Who was the father of the self-actualization movement? Who do you think was the father of that? You can talk to me. Satan was the father. Let's look at Isaiah 14. This is talking about the fall of Satan. How you, have, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the, the nations low. You said in your heart, this is Satan, Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Five eyes, five personal pronouns. I, 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 I. It's, it's Lucifer, Satan, who was the father of this idea that life is about me. The capital I. And then he influenced Eve and convinced her that life was about her. Then she convinced Adam that life was about him. Do what you want to do. Disobey God's law. Life is about you. Have it your way right away. The Burger King slogan. Your way right away. The I generation. Well, what does Jesus say about that? Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him, what's that phrase there? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The denial of self is at the heart of Christianity. And the opposite is true in our world and in our culture. The praise and the worship of self, the glorification of self, parading about how awesome you are, is the religion of our culture. Christianity says, if you want to come after Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must first deny yourself. And this is the heart of the parable we're going to look at this morning. It stands in, it, it, gives us, it gives us a picture and a contrast between two characters in this parable. One of them is a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. It's in Luke 18. And, one, and, and both of them go to church. Both of them come to the temple to pray. And so let's look at the parable. Let's read Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is continuing where we left off last week. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Such a powerful picture that we see here. And this parable is a parable of contrast. It's a clear contrast between two people and their approaches to God. Two people and their approaches to how they're going to pray. How are they going to approach God and what is the difference? And we're going we're to look at those key differences to how they approached 
So there's three things that we're, we're going to look at. We're going to look at their posture, the posture of prayer. Then we're going to look at we're going to look at their prayers that they prayed. We're going to look at both of their prayers and dissect that. And then we're going to look at the shocking conclusion to this story. But if you notice the heart of the parable, just like last week, Jesus gave the meaning of the parable last week at the very start. That he, he said that he wanted all, all people to, to not lose heart and to pray. And he, before he went into the parable, he told us what the meaning was. And he does the same thing here. The very first verse, verse 9, it says, he also told them this parable to, to some. He was telling this to the people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That is the heart of this parable. He's talking to people that trust in their own ability, their own ability to please God, their own righteousness, their own church attendance, their own good works, their own way. They're trusting in themselves in their own righteousness before God. This is why he's telling this parable. So let's, let's look at the characters. You've got a Pharisee and you have a tax collector. So who were the Pharisees in Jesus' day? The Pharisees were well-respected religious leaders. Now, you know, Jesus, when he deals with the Pharisees, especially in Matthew 23, if you've ever read Matthew 23, Jesus blasts the Pharisees. He goes over and over again and he says, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You do this. You say you should live this way, but this is how you live. You are like a whitewashed tomb sepulcher. You, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them snakes in the grass. And so that's our view of Pharisees. Mostly as Christians, we see them as just these terrible lowlifes. But the view in Jewish culture was that these Pharisees were highly esteemed in Jewish culture because they knew the law of God. They knew the Torah. They knew the first five books of the Old Testament by heart. They had them memorized. They could recite it, recite it all. Can you imagine having to recite Leviticus by heart? Think about that. If you read Leviticus, you know, challenging book, lots of stuff going on in there. And this is who they were, very well respected because of their devotion to the law. And that not only did they have devotion to the law of God written in the Torah, but they took it to a whole nother level. Whatever the law required in, in some of the areas, they would expand it and say, I'm going to go even further and do even more to demonstrate my devotion to God, to, to, to Torah, to the law. And so these, these, Jesus, what he did was he exposed their, their hypocrisy. He exposed who they really were in their heart. But in that culture, when Jesus is telling this story to the people that are listening to this story, they would have seen the Pharisee as a righteous person. They would have seen the Pharisee as somebody to look up to because they were at the heights of their culture and their society as concerning the law of God and righteousness and understanding God's word. This is who they were. These were the Pharisees. Now, who were the tax collectors? The tax collectors were... If you got the Pharisees up here, the tax collectors were under the ground. They were six feet deep in comparison to the Pharisees in Jewish culture. And why was that? We talked a little bit about this last week, or it might have been Wednesday, but I talked about it recently. The tax collectors, they were hired by Rome to collect taxes from the Jewish people to give to the Roman government. And what they would do is, is that when they set up their tax booths and they would come and collect the taxes from, from their people, they were Jews that were hired by Rome to collect taxes from their people. They would sit at the, at the tax booth and they would collect the correct amount of tax for the, for, for the Roman government, for the state government. 
but they would hike up the tax a little bit higher and make the Jews pay a higher tax than what was required, and they would pocket the difference. They were extortioners. They were thieves. They were robbers. And so they were stealing from their own people. And not only that, were they extortioners and robbers and thieves, but they had a reputation of being adulterers and fornicators and liars. So these, the tax collectors were some of the most despised human beings in Jewish culture. So look at the contrast Jesus is starting out with. He's saying, he's painting a picture. You've got a super religious, religious elite person going to church to pray. And then you've got the lowest of the low in the totem pole of society, spiritual, spiritually speaking, going towards the temple to pray. It couldn't be a greater contrast. Couldn't be a greater contrast. So that's who the characters are. That's who the characters are. The tax collectors, they were considered... This is from Gary Inrig, a commentary on Luke 18. He says that the tax collectors were considered traitors by the Jews, classed with robbers by the righteous and shunned by the respectable. Tax collectors worked for the Romans and had a well-deserved reputation for dishonesty and corruption. They were usually corrupt personally and unclean religiously. So this parable was written for those who trusted in themselves like this Pharisee did. That's who it was written for. So those are who the, that, that, that's what the story is about. Those are the characters. Now let's, let's go through. Let's look through how they prayed and then what they prayed. So the first thing I want you to look at is this, is, is the posture of prayer. What was their posture of prayer like? They prayed differently. They positioned themselves differently. Let's look back at Luke 18, verse 10 and 11. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, here's what his posture, standing by himself, prayed like this. So the only clue that we have about his posture of prayer was that he was stood by himself. Now, it was very common for Jews to stand. That was one of the postures of prayer for the Jews, was to go to the temple and to stand to pray. So it wasn't uncommon for them to stand in prayer. They go, they, the Jews will go to the wailing wall, and they'll stand and they will pray at the wailing wall. So it, it was common for them to stand and pray. So this was not abnormal. But what was significant about what he was doing, when you, when you study the, the original languages there, it's not just a simple standing by himself. It's the picture standing by himself for all to see. Standing by himself so he can be seen and standing in a prominent place so he can be heard. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. He talked about how the Pharisees and scribes would position themselves. And he told us not to be like them in, in, in Matthew 6. It says, Matthew 6 verses 5 through 6, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what, what was the Pharisee doing? He was positioning himself in a place to be seen by everyone, to let everyone see him, to see who he was. This is what Pharisees did. It was very common that Pharisees would do this. They would pray so others could hear him. And so let's see the contrast. What did the tax collector do? Luke eighteen thirteen says this, but the, but the tax collector standing far off. 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. What's, what's, what's his posture like? First thing is this. He stood afar off. So it says they both went to the temple to pray, right? The Pharisee positioned himself in a place where he could be seen. What did the, what did the tax collector do? He stood afar off, as far away as he could, but still be in the temple area. He stood afar off. Why did he stand afar off? I believe he stood afar off is because he knows that he doesn't belong in the temple. He knows he is a despised man in the community. He knows that he has robbed his people and violated God's law. He doesn't want to bring attention to himself, but he wants to draw closer to God. Draw, he wants to draw closer to God than he was before he got there. He knows who he is. He know, look, if you're a tax collector in that culture and you are despised and ridiculed and looked down upon, and you're an adulterer and a thief and a robber, you know who you are. You know that guilt and, and that shame. Now, he was a Jew. He understood God's law. He wasn't naive to what God's law was. He was a Jewish man. So this is why he stood afar off. He's like, you know what? I, I don't want to be seen. I'm so overwhelmed with shame and guilt over who I am. I'm not even coming near where that mercy seat is in the temple. I'm staying as far away as I can. But I know I need to be there because I know that's where mercy is found. So I've got to get as close as I can because I know that's where my help is found. What's the second thing that he did? He didn't even lift his eyes to heaven. This is a picture of someone being overwhelmed by profound guilt, intense shame, and an utter sense of disgrace. He knew he was unworthy. Have any of you ever felt like that? Coming to church, you feel like I can't even lift my eyes. I can't lift up my head to heaven to pray to God. Because you know what you've done. You know who you are. You live with the guilt of your guilty conscience on your heart. This is what it means to not even lift your eyes. This is that picture. He doesn't even want to lift his eyes up to heaven. Because he has a view. Even though he's not thinking of it all the time. He has a view of the holiness of God. He knows who God is. That's why he's at the temple. But he knows who he is. And that's why he's afar off. And his head is down. He's full of shame and guilt, overwhelmed by his sin. What's the third thing that he did? It says that he beat his breast. He beat his breast. What does it mean to beat your breast? What are you doing when you're beating your breast? Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? The whole process of his crucifixion is being beaten and he's being, he's being tortured. And his beard is being ripped out. He's being ridiculed and mocked and spit on for us, for our sin. He's taking our place, taking the punishment we deserve. He's going through that whole process. And then, and then Jesus is on the cross. He's about to give up his spirit and die. Look what it says in Luke 23, 46 through 48. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion that would have been over the crucifixion of Jesus, who would have been involved in what took place when Jesus was crucified. And what happened when he gave up his spirit? The earth shook. There was lightnings and there was thunder and there was an earthquake. It was pitch black, dark. And the centurion said, surely this man was innocent. And look what happens here. 
And all the crowds that had gathered assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breast. Why would somebody beat their breast? It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of guilt and shame and regret. What did we just do? What did we just oversee in the crucifixion of Jesus? And this is what this tax collector is doing. He's, his, his whole posture, his whole body language is one of repentance, one of shame, one of guilt, one of sorrow, one of recognizing his true condition. And the opposite is completely, is completely different. The Pharisee is in there and, and he is posturing himself to be seen, to be heard. Completely different. Their posture cannot be completely more stark. Now it's time to pray. That's their posture. Now let's see what they say. You know, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So if you want to know what somebody thinks and who they really are, hang around them a little bit and, and you, you, you'll see who they really are. What comes out of their mouth is who you really are. You know, you can try to hide who you really are, but your, your close friends know you. Your wife knows you. Your husband knows who you really are. And so we're about to see who these men really are. Let's look at their prayer. So the second thing we're going to look at is the contrasting prayers. First, you had the posture of prayer. Now we have the contrasting prayers. Let's first look at the Pharisees' prayer. Luke 18, 11 and 12. This is how he says. This is how he starts out. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What's he doing right there? Not only is he saying that he doesn't want to be like this, he's glad he's not like this tax collector, this sense of pride that he's praying. It's not even really a prayer. You can't even really call it a prayer. Who's he praying to? What petition has he got brought before God? What plea for mercy has he brought? What, 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 what sign of praise and worship has he brought before God in prayer? He's not even praying. He's just talking about the things that he's glad that he's not. And every character trait that he describes, he's describing the tax collector. So, I see this picture. I see the Pharisee who knows where he is, knows where everyone else is in the temple because he wants to make sure they see him. I think he sees where the tax collector is because obviously he says, I'm glad I'm not like him. So he sees the tax collector. And I think he's saying it loud enough. He's describing this wretched sinner that he despises as an adulterer, an extortioner, a robber. And he says, I'm glad I'm not like all those men and even this tax collector over here. What pride. What self-centeredness. He can't see past the end of his nose in his so-called prayer. You know, but that wasn't all new. That, that, that wasn't just new to their... To, that type of prayer was common in that culture. In the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish Talmud is a collection of writings by the rabbis, thousands of, of rabbis throughout Jewish history would write things based upon their interpretation and understanding of the Torah, of the first five books of, of our Old Testament. And so they would write their thoughts and their opinions and their views. And so the Jewish Talmud is studied to see what the rabbis and the scholars of Jewish law would, would think. And so listen to this prayer that is recorded in the Jewish Talmud, and it will show you that this type of prayer was very common. It says, I thank you, O Lord my God, that you have given my lot with those who sit in the house of Torah the house of the study of God's word and not with those who sit in, in the street corners for they are early to work and I am early to work. I am early to work on the words of Torah and they are early to work on things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. 
I weary myself and profit. They weary themselves to no profit. I run and they run. I run to the life of the age to come. They run to the pit of destruction. Such a power. Like this is who they are. This is how they viewed themselves. And some of it was 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 innocent. They 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 wouldn't have categorized themselves. I guess most prideful people won't categorize themselves as prideful, but they wouldn't have seen themselves as, as prideful. That's why when Jesus blasted them, that's why that's why they killed him. Because they didn't see themselves that way. But it's obvious to all of us, right? It's easy to see that they're prideful. That's why when a prideful person comes in and starts talking, it's easy to see. And, and they're the ones that are, are, are deceived. I genuinely believe this Pharisee was deceived. He wanted to be about the study of the Torah. He wanted to be about the study of the law. He wanted to be in God's temple. He wanted to be there. But his motives were not right. He was deceived in his heart. So this is how he prayed. This is the second thing he prayed here. So now he talks about, he compares himself to everyone else, all the bad people that he's not like. And then he talks, starts talking about his works now. He says this, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Fasting for the Jews was, was required once a year. Once a year was it required for the Day of Atonement. Leading up to the Day of Atonement celebration, they would be required to fast once a year. The Pharisees said, that's not enough. You guys, that'd be like me as a Christian saying, you guys, you guys fast once a year. But just to show that I'm really super spiritual, I'm going to fast not just once a year, but twice a week. On Mondays and Thursdays, the, the rabbis and the Pharisees, the, 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 the Pharisees would, would fast. And then it says that they gave tithes of all that he got. So it was required that the Jews in the Old Testament would give tithes of all their income. But it was not required that they would give tithes of everything that, 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 that they took in. They were paying a double tithe. And they even went to the extreme. Listen to what they did. This is in Matthew 23. It says, this is Jesus speaking, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So what were they doing there? Not only were they tithing on their income, but they took their Tony Sacheries and they poured it out on the table and they divided it and said, okay, well, th- this is one lump hole, so I'm going to give 10% of this lump to God. Then I'm going to take my, my garlic powder and I'm going to do that. And the, the, the cumin and the mint and their dill, they tithed on their spices. And listen to this. This is so amazing. It says, these you ought to have done. You should have been worried about justice and mercy and faithfulness. You blind guides. Listen to this. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What does that even mean? Straining out a gnat. This is what they would do. The, the gnat, a gnat. You guys know what a gnat is? A little small little insect that is a gnat, gets on your nerves. A little small insect. The gnat was considered unclean to the juice. It was the smallest unclean insect possible. So when Jesus is saying that they strain out a gnat, the Jews would actually take their drink that they would drink. The, excuse me, the Pharisees would do this. They would take their drink and they would strain it like you strain it through a sieve. There's been a really small holes in there to try to strain out a gnat just in case there would be a gnat. Just in case they would drink something unclean. They wanted to make sure that they, they would even strain out the gnats. And look at the word picture there. You strain out a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. Like you, you're trying not to swallow the little bit, small little insect, and you're missing the whole point. You're swallowing the camel. So this is who the Pharisee is. This is how he's praying. 
He's coming before God and he's trying to say, I'm tithing, I'm straining out gnats, I'm paying my tithes, I'm giving to the poor. I want everyone to see who I am because I am spiritual. That was his prayer. What was the tax collector's prayer? Very simple. Very simple prayer. He said this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He makes no justification. No attempt at whitewashing his true condition. He makes no excuses. He knows that God does not forgive excuses, only sins. This is who the tax collector is. And this is how he prays. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, in the temple would have been the mercy seat. He's crying out for God's mercy because he knows inside of there is the place where the atonement for sins are made. So he's coming before God asking for mercy because he knows this is where it's found. And then he says this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So when you read it at first, you think, well, he's just joining himself with the group of other sinners. We're all sinners, so he's just a part of all of us as sinners, a sinner. But when you study that phrase out, a sinner, in the original languages, in the Greek, it is, it is a definite article. So it is translated in the Greek, the sinner. Not a sinner, but the sinner. He sees himself as not just a sinner, but the sinner of all sinners. And the same language, and we know that because the same language that is used right there, Luke 18, is used by the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who was a Pharisee before he got saved. This is what he says of himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Same language using Luke 18 by the tax collector. He says, God, I know your mercy is here. I know this is where I'm, I can find it. I'm full of shame. I'm full of guilt. I'm full of sin. I'm, I'm an adulterer. I'm a thief. I'm a robber. I am guilty. I am not just a sinner. I am the sinner. I am the worst of sinners. I know that's who I am. I am the chief sinner. I mean, the contrast cannot be more stark. Spiritual pride, spiritual elitism versus being contrite and humble and repentant. The differences cannot be more stark. So what happens? What happens? The Jews would have said, well, I know what's going to happen. It's obvious what's going to happen. Well, what happens? This is the shocking conclusion to this parable. Look at Luke eighteen fourteen. And I can't overestimate or overemphasize, excuse me, I can't overemphasize how shocking this would have been to his listeners. Luke 18, 14, this is what Jesus says after the posture and after the prayers of both of them. He says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I can just hear the scribes that, or the scribes and Pharisees that would have been listening or even, even just a normal Jew who viewed the the Pharisees as super religious and elite. I can imagine them saying, what? This cannot be true. The Pharisees would have been livid. There is, they would have said this, there is no way that God would justify a sinner. God doesn't justify sinners. He only justifies the righteous. 
That was their view, that God didn't justify, God doesn't justify sinners. The sinners go to hell. The righteous ones are the ones that are justified before God. They would have been shocked. There's, Jesus, you're crazy. You're a crazy man. It, it only reinforced in their hearts that Jesus was a crazy man and deserving of death. The parable contrasts the only two types of religion that exist. The false religion of human achievement versus the true gospel of divine accomplishment. You, do you guys know there's only two religions that exist? Human accomplishment, human achievement versus divine accomplishment. Those are the only two. Now, the false religious systems of human achievement take many different forms. You have, you can have the non-religious atheist who wants nothing to do with God and he tries to ease his conscience by being a good person and not killing people and not being a bad person, being a good worker. He, in some sense, even an atheist is trying to appease his conscience. Then you get other false religions that don't center on divine accomplishment and Jesus being the one to pay for our sins. Every form of that, the, at the core of it, it is based on human, human accomplishment, just like this Pharisee. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pay tithes. I'm going to be good to my wife, good to my husband. I'm going to raise my kids to worship the Lord. I, I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to be bad. I'm not going to be as bad as other people. But that's in complete contrast to Christianity. Christianity is based upon the reality of divine accomplishment. What Jesus accomplished for us on our behalf because we were incapable of accomplishing it. That is Christianity. That is the gospel message. You know, a picture of the gospel is this. I've got a picture of, uh, I wanted a picture of the Grand Canyon, but we really couldn't get any type of picture. But here you have this, this man here. Let's just pretend, just pretend with me, that the gap between the rock he's standing on and the, the grassy rock on the other side is as wide as the Grand Canyon. Let's just pretend that that's what the case is. Let's just pretend again that there's two other guys standing up there with him. And the idea is, is that the person who can jump the furthest is the one that's going to be pleasing to God, right? So you got to get to, got to get to the other side, though. You got to get to the other side. You got to get to the other side to please God. So the first man jumps and he makes it just a quarter of the way. I mean, just falls down into the canyon. And everyone's like, "Man, that's pretty good. You did, you did pretty good getting close to God." He tried his best. Then you got the second man. He he's like, "Okay, I, I, I got to get a better running start here." So he takes off. He runs. He jumps. He gets halfway between the chasm but he falls into the canyon and dies everyone applauds man what a great job man you tithe really good and you came to church really good and you sing so beautiful and you put you and you you're just such a great religious person you did so good and then but he ended up at the bottom of the canyon and then you got the third guy he takes off and he runs and he jumps and he gets all the way to the end and he's holding on to the grass and he's right there, but he runs out of strength and he falls down into the canyon and he dies. People would think, man, well, the third guy who made it all the way across and touched the other side was almost there. He, he should be praised. No, everyone ended up at the bottom of the canyon and missed the boat. And that's the picture of false religion is that every religious system, no matter how good it is or how great it is, you don't bridge the chasm. There's only one way to bridge the chasm. 
And it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's that, that next picture. That's the only way. Jesus has to bridge the gap. And we walk across based upon our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on our behalf. No one crosses the Grand Canyon of our distance from a holy God without the cross. Nobody does. Nobody makes it. Nobody does without Christ. You know, I was listening to O.J. Simpson last week. Did anybody else listen to his parole hearing? Now, look, I'm not making statements about guilt or innocence. So if, if you believe he's innocent, you believe he's innocent, you believe he's guilty, it's not about guilt or innocence. I'm just, there's something I, I caught on to that as he was talking, and I really felt sorry for O.J. Simpson listening to him. So here he's before the parole board. He's served nine years for a crime that he basically didn't say he committed in his parole hearing. And he's st- sitting there. And so the, one of the, commission, the commissioner, one of them, asked him, what programs have you gone through to better yourself, to make yourself better? What have you done that, that, that would help us to feel better about you being out in the general public? And he said, well, you know, I went to this one program. And he lists the program and all the details of the program. And then he says this. He says, and, and I used to be a Baptist. And he said, he said, but, you know, everyone knows I've kind of strayed from that. And I've had some, some infidelity issues. He actually said that. He said, so I haven't been a very good Baptist. He said, but I organized a Baptist gathering within the prison. And we had people come and to teach Bible studies. And, and he said, so I'm, and this was the phrase that pierced me to my heart. It reminded me of the chasm. He said, he said, so I'm trying to be a better Christian. I'm trying to be a better Christian. And I thought, man, that is exactly what everyone does that, that doesn't know Christ. I'm trying to be better. I'm trying to be good. And you can have people who are religious and they're just trying as hard as they can to be a better Christian. That's not Christianity. You will never be good enough to be the best Christian you can possibly be to please God. The only way to please God is to be like the tax collector. To say, I am the sinner in need of mercy and forgiveness. Scripture says in Isaiah that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We can bring none of it to God and say, God, I've tried to be good. I've tried to please you. I've tried to make you happy. Accept me, take me, receive me because of what I've done. And you will fall short. People will fall short every time just like this Pharisee. You People will leave even churches not justified before God. I was so sad for O.J. Simpson. Because he's in desperate need of justification. You know, what is... What does it mean to be justified? Justification is the greatest doctrine of the Christian faith. Without justification, without the, the ability for us to be justified before God, we have no standing. So what does justification mean? It means that we're all like the tax collector. We're guilty. And that whenever we come through faith in Jesus Christ and place our faith in the, what he did for us on our behalf, it says that God justifies us and that word justification to be justified is a legal term and that term would be like if you went to a court and you were charged with a crime and you're standing before the judge and you plead your case and the judge finds you innocent not guilty and he slams his gavel down and he says innocent not guilty you leave that court justified fully 
innocent, not guilty. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you become a Christian, the gavel of heaven, the court of heaven, God slams down his gavel and declares you, declares you innocent, not guilty. It's not a process of becoming innocent. It is an instantaneous justification. And here's what happens at justification. This is why it's instantaneous. Because God the Father, based upon your faith in Jesus, takes the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus, and he imputes it to you. He gives it to you. So now the ground of your justification is not like the Pharisee. I tithe and I fast and I'm not bad. I'm basically good. This ground of your righteousness is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ because you are found in him, not having your own righteousness, but a different righteousness, his righteousness. So when you stand justified, it's because you are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Man, that's, that's the gospel message. That's, that's such a powerful truth that we are justified. Nobody. Where, where, are the, where, are the, where are the accusers? There's no one. There's no one can accuse those who have been justified. Romans 10.3 says this, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, like the Pharisee, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They tried to establish their own righteousness. Justification is impossible for those who are confident in their own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21 says this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him Christ To be sin who knew no sin so that, this is what I was speaking about, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You guys see that? That is so powerful. Think about how powerful the gospel is. God doesn't want you to become righteous in your own righteousness. To stand before him. He says that through faith in Jesus Christ, he wants to reconcile you so that you might be in him and you might become the righteousness of God. That is, that is too good to be true. It's the greatest exchange of all exchanges. I give up my sin and my guilt and my shame and my unrighteousness. And God says, I'm going to give you the free gift of the righteousness of my son who is perfect and blameless and spotless and without sin. It's an unfair trade. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is so good right there. The righteousness of God is revealed apart from fastidious living by the law like the Pharisees did. Righteousness is revealed apart from the law. Although although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Meaning that the Old Testament spoke of Jesus. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, the tax collector and the Pharisee, all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. We all, we all fall short, we all miss the cliff, we don't get over to the grassy knoll, we all hit the bottom of the canyon. There's no distinction, everyone misses it. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation means satisfaction by his blood. What that means is, is that the wrath of God that had to be paid for our sins was satisfied in Christ Jesus. His blood propitiated or satisfied the wrath of God. And, it, and that is received by faith. Oh, that is so powerful. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Forgot to tell you the title of my message. I'm at the end. But the title of my message is The Sinner's Prayer. The Sinner's Prayer. A lot of people have an idea of what the sinner's prayer is. If you title the message The Sinner's Prayer, some people might come in with a preconceived idea of what you're going to preach about. Well, that must be the prayer that you pray whenever you come down to the altar and you recite a, a rote prayer that somebody tells you to pray and that's the sinner's prayer. But that's not the sinner's prayer. There's no prayer that I could get you to pray. I, I, can't, I can't get you to recite a prayer that I pray, per se, if you don't really mean it. If, if somebody recites a prayer and it's just not even a part of their heart, then what does that do? Then you're just like the Pharisee. The sinner's prayer is different. That's the, capital T-H-E, the sinner's prayer. What is the sinner's prayer? The sinner's prayer is the prayer of any sinner who prays a prayer and calls out to mercy, for mercy from God. That's the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is the prayer of a person who rightly sees himself as this tax collector did. They see themselves as the, capital V, sinner who stands in desperate need of God's mercy and forgiveness. The prayer of a sinner who rightly understands his condition before a holy God is the only sinner's prayer that pleases the Lord. So all of you at some point will have to pray a sinner's prayer, but it's your prayer. It comes from your heart where you are like the tax collector. You don't have all these flowery words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says that man left justified. He didn't pray a long prayer. The reason is that God knew his heart. And that's the, that's the sinner's prayer. Have you prayed that prayer? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Not a sinner's prayer. Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Have you ever been in the place in your life where you've seen your true condition? Have you ever acknowledged before a holy God that you're infinitely guilty and have no grounds to stand on apart from Him? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer, a prayer that says, God, I don't know how it's possible. I don't know how it's going to happen. But God, if it's, if it's possible, can you please forgive me for what I've done? God, I believe in you. I believe in your son, Jesus. Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Have you meant it from your heart? Have you repented of your sins? I'm not asking, have you been religious? Have you attended church? 
Are you a good person? Because none of that, none of that, none of that affords you anything in God's kingdom. I'm asking this morning for everyone, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Many of you here have prayed the sinner's prayer. You've surrendered to Christ and you are in faith and you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the accuser cannot accuse you any longer. You are righteous before God. But there are some here this morning that you have trusted in your own righteousness. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you thought Maybe, maybe you thought you were a Christian, but for the first time this morning, you're seeing a picture that my good religious deeds don't warrant me favor from heaven. And maybe there's some of you here this morning, you, you know, you feel like the tax collector. You're here this morning and you know what you've done. You acknowledge it. You see the guilt. You live with the guilt and the shame. And you don't want to lift your eyes to heaven. It's hard for you to even worship this morning. Maybe that's you this morning. So my question again is this, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? The prayer that a sinner prays when he is contrite and repentant and surrendered to Christ. Won't you stand to your feet with me? your eyes. Just hang tight for a couple minutes. Just, 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 be, just be praying. Those of you that are, are believers in Christ, just be praying. I just want to ask, is there anybody here this morning, you know that that's who you are. That you are the sinner. And you recognize it. You see it. And you, you know you need God's mercy. And I'm just here to tell you God's mercy is here, arms wide open ready to forgive, ready for you to leave the temple, leave the house of God justified today. If that's you, and you know it's you, not going to manipulate you, try to control you, try to get you to do something you don't want to do, but if that's you and you know it, I just want to see your hand. Is there anybody like that here this morning? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. Just lift your hand. Yes. Anybody else? I just want to pray for you. If, you're, if you have the courage, the boldness, I, I, I want you to meet me down here and I want to agree with you in prayer. I want us to pray a, a sinner's prayer, the sinner's prayer to God. I want you to pray before a God that loves you. I want you to surrender. If that's you, I want you to make your way down front. If you raised your hand or you didn't raise your hand and you know that's you, I want you to make your way down front. Thank you, Jesus. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation. We're all, all of us that are believers here, we've all had to be at this point in our life to surrender, to fully give our heart to Christ. So awesome. You guys are so awesome. Anybody else?
Amen. So I want to talk to you. You guys just be patient. I want you all to look at me. Those that came up front. What I said is true. There is not a there's not a prayer that I can pray and get you to pray that that they can necessarily save you. It's not magical. It's your prayer from your heart of surrender. So maybe it'll sound like the tax collectors, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Maybe it'll sound a little different. But the point is this is that you what you're saying right here, right now, this is what you're saying. You're saying that I acknowledge that Jesus is God and that he took my place on the cross. He became my substitute. He's taking the punishment that I deserve. And you're placing your faith in that and you're believing that that, that all of that was sealed. Your justification was sealed by the resurrection. That's what you're acknowledging today. And if you're willing to acknowledge that today, then today, as it says in Luke 18, you will leave this house justified. That's the power of the gospel. That's what that means. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer, prayer. And I want you to pray in your heart. And I want you to surrender to Christ. And we're going to pray together. And then after I dismiss, I just want to talk to you guys privately. Amen. Just bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the only way for salvation. You have provided a way for us to be saved through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we surrender to that. We thank you for that provision. And God, and I pray for the ones that responded to this call. God, you have been working in their hearts long before they stepped into this room. You've been working in their hearts and you've been drawing them and calling them. Because that's what you do. You wish that none should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And I thank you for their hearts that are so soft and surrendered to you. Lord, I just pray that you would hear their prayer. That you would hear the cry of their heart and their declaration of faith this morning. And thank you, Lord, that today they leave different. They leave changed. They leave justified and in right standing with you. We thank you for this. Thank you for the free gift of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I love you guys. You guys are dismissed. See you uh, next Sunday.